0: Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website Evidence-Based Errata. Let's start tonight with some actually exciting news. Ah, oh, thankfully. Thankfully. <laughs> NASA successfully launched the Perseverance Mars rover this morning. Now, two other rovers were actually also launched recently because this is a really good time to do these sorts of things because Earth and Mars are in a uh, really good alignment at the moment. And so uh, they were launched by the United Arab Emirates, uh, and that one is called Hope, and that will actually be an orbiter. And China has launched its Tianwen-1 lander, or Tianwen-1 lander. And so hopefully they'll also be uh, successful. And uh, obviously, the planets don't belong to anyone or the moon, uh, even though some people would like to uh, claim it for America. Uh, international, uh, There's an international treaty that says that... Uh, Bodies outside of the Earth are not able to be claimed by any country. And so Perseverance lifted off yesterday morning from the Kennedy Space Center on an Atlas V rocket. Perseverance will be the fifth NASA rover to land on the planet. Sojourner and Spirit were the first two rovers to explore the planet, with Spirit and Opportunity coming later. And so all of the rovers were able to spend more time exploring the planet than they were supposed to originally. And so Perseverance is supposed to have a two-year mission. But as we know, that has often been, um, again, like I said, it's often gone for much longer than they expected it to. And so all but Curiosity, unfortunately, have now ended their missions. Uh, Batteries have run dry. Uh, They've been unable to recharge because uh, Martian sandstorms have covered their solar panels and things like that. Um, And so Perseverance will look for signs of past life on Mars in the Jezero Crater, which was once the site of a lake and river delta. So we know for certain that Mars once was covered in water, Um, and so we are concentrating our efforts, obviously, in places where we know there once was water, because that is the condition that we know is best for life to develop on Earth. And since Earth is our only uh, frame of reference, that's what we have to do. And so it will look at the planet's geology, and it'll study rocks and sediment, examine the climate, and we will try an experiment which will attempt to produce oxygen from atmospheric carbon dioxide, which, of course, would be helpful if humans decide they want to move towards colonizing the planet. Now, longtime viewer listeners, I should say, uh, would will know that I am not particularly a giant fan of of the idea of um, manned space exploration. I get why people like it. I just think it's better to send robots and to concentrate on other things. And I am absolutely okay with people making arguments against that argument. And I think that uh, there are some good arguments against it, that lots of things are developed while people are developing the technology to send people into space. I just think that there's a lot of things on the Earth that they should maybe do that for, like the oceans. Um, So, again, longtime listeners will know my preference for the oceans over space uh, when it comes to manned exploration because we still know so little about our own oceans. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, another part of the mission will actually collect rocks and soil samples, which will be placed in small containers which, if everything goes to plan, will actually be collected and returned to Earth by a future mission. That mission is actually currently scheduled to launch in 2026. In addition, Perseverance will have a companion, which is very exciting, a tiny helicopter called Ingenuity. Now, the rotorcraft, if it works, will be the first aircraft to fly on another planet. Um, I thought it was really interesting. One of the articles I was reading about this said it will be the first man-made aircraft to fi- fly on another air, on another planet. And I thought that's an interesting phrase because, as far as we know, it will be the first aircraft of any kind, <laughs> not just man-made. Um, I'm wondering if they're they're trying to hedge their bets about the the aliens. <laughs> And so uh, the rotorcraft, it really will just be mostly a proof of concept. It doesn't have any instrumentation of its own, uh, but hopefully it will lead to uh, being able to develop craft that both fly and have sensors, instruments, things like that, that can do their own uh, data Reconnaissance as well as the landers, because of course the landers can only go, you know, at a fairly sedate pace across a small amount of the planet's surface. But if you had a uh, flying um, object, you could potentially do a lot, mo- cover a lot more ground, and so um, that's of course one of the projections for other um, explorations of uh, moons further out in the solar system. There are some um, aircraft in development for exploring the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, for instance, and it's so that you can get cover more ground in addition to just being uh, more flexible, potentially, and also just honestly very cool. (laughs) And so, yeah, so hopefully everything is going to go okay. The lander is expected to arrive on February 7th, 2021, so we do have a while to wait. Um, But let us hope that everything is going to go to plan, and we will have yet another extremely exciting and even more advanced Uh, lander on the planet soon. Okay, so let's move on now and talk to something that's kind of tangentially related. Um, Perseverance will be looking for life that may have once existed on Mars, while scientists on Earth have revived bacterial microbes that were buried in 100 million year old sediment. And so an international team of scientists led by geomicrobiologist Yuki Morono from the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology were able to revive microbes which were extracted from energy-poor seafloor sediments dating all the way back to 101.5 million years ago. Now, the microbes were brought back to life in the laboratory and pretty much immediately began to eat and reproduce as if they'd never been inert. Now, the bacteria, quote unquote, retained their metabolic potential throughout the centuries, according to the report in Nature Communications. Once again, this new study extends our view of the habitable biosphere on Earth and the ability of microbes to survive under suboptimal conditions. Virginia Edgecombe, a geologist from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, who actually wasn't involved in the study, noted. It also extends our view of where viable microbial life contributes to carbon and other nutrient turnovers in the deep biosphere. Now, previously, researchers have claimed to recover and revive bacterial spores from 250-million-year-old salt crystals found in New Mexico. But that uh, finding has not only been disputed, but those were also spores. It turns out that in this this, um, finding, they don't believe that the samples had actually become spores. And so these microbes were taken from the oldest marine sediment samples ever examined. And the researchers say they, quote, directly saw microbial revival through incorporation of added nutrients. And so, again, they noted that a large amount of the microbes were not in spore form, but immediately began to eat and divide as soon as they were given those nutrients. And so that's an important distinction, because spores are specifically meant to Add to the longevity of microbes. That's the whole point of becoming a spore is to prolong the ability to revive. But if you have sediments that immediately revive, that's a completely different ball game. And so the sediments were actually extracted 10 years ago uh, from the abyssal plain in the South Pacific Gyre. And so they came from around 245 feet below the seafloor. And the column dated from 13 million to 101.5 million years old. So what they do is they dig cores and they pull up these cores of seafloor sediment. Now, some oxygen was detected in the soils. However, no organic materials were available for food. Now, this area was chosen because it is the site of some of the clearest water in the world because it has low concentrations of sea surface phytoplankton. This quote unquote marine snow, uh, usually sinks to the bottom of the seafloor and gives the microbes their food to survive. But this area has very little deposition. The seafloor gains just three to six feet every million years. And so the researchers wanted to see if and how life could survive in these conditions. They fed the microbes isotope labeled substrates of carbon and nitrogen. And so this would, of course, allow them to then track that um, input. The researchers wanted to, again, track this microbial consumption of these added foods. Over the course of 68 days, the researchers watched the microbes increase in population and multiply by more than four orders of magnitude. Almost 99% of the microbes found actually came back to life, which actually surprised the researchers themselves. Deep beneath the seafloor, nutrients are very limited, so the microbes were almost at the state of fasting, says Morono. So it is surprising and biologically challenging that a large fraction of microbes could be revived from a very long time of burial or entrapment in extremely low nutrient energy conditions. Now, the researchers use DNA and RNA to identify the micro- microbes as aerobic, which means they need oxygen. And they are certain that there was no chance of contamination as the sediments have very little permeability, which means that if something was on the surface of it, it couldn't reach into those uh, sediments that were in the center of the core. Now, of course, given the fact that we're all staying at home due to a novel virus, you may be thinking to yourself, why would they consider reviving ancient bacteria? <laughs> Morono said, "Subseafloor seafloor sediment is regarded as at low risk for health since no infecting host like a human exists in that environment. However, we have been handling the microbes at all times in the clean room. And, of course, just how they manage to survive is a mystery, which Morono and his colleagues hope to explore in the future. Jennifer Biddle, an associate professor from the School of Marine Science and Policy at the University of Delaware, who was also not involved in the research, says, What is really surprising about this study is that this sediment has oxygen in it. As we all strive to have diets full of antioxidants, we know oxygen is an agent of degradation. So having long-term survival in it is impressive, she said. However, we don't know what the cell is actually seeing in the sediment. There may be small cages of low oxygen habitat that enhance survival. Now, it also shows the importance of organic carbon as a food source, which is disappointing to some of the scientists like Biddle. It's a bit disappointing considering that we are finding out time and time again that the subsurface is reliant on the surface for its food. I still await the self-reliant subsurface sedimentary microbe. So hopefully at some point we will discover that. But alas, not today. But nonetheless, this is a very cool finding. Uh, And again, it has implications for things like finding microbes on Mars. Because we know that things can last for millions, tens of millions of years. Okay. Okay. So we are going to move on and talk about another cool bacterial find. I know bacteria is not exactly the most exciting thing in the world, but it's still very important to science in a lot of ways. Um, and obviously bacteria are pretty much the largest uh, group of animals or uh, animal, vegetable, or mineral on the uh, earth. Um, as far as if you, if you counted up all of the uh, bacterial and uh, biomass, it would be much greater than any of the, uh, probably even much greater than that of the ants, which are the uh, most abundant animal on the planet. Okay, so again, we're going to stick with microbes for a minute. So researchers have found the first example of manganese-eating bacteria, and they were found in the office sink. Uh, So this is a great story about serendipitous finds. Um, Oh, sorry. Uh, It's definitely an interesting story about serendipity, says Jared Ledbetter, an environmental microbiologist at Caltech. (laughs) Uh, He and Hang Yu, also an environmental microbiologist at Caltech, report their fortuitous find in the journal Nature. Nature. Ledbetter was working with manganese carbonate, which is a pink compound, uh, and he had it in a glass jar. He was having trouble cleaning the jar out, so he did what most of us would do. He filled it with tap water and left it to soak, except... It turned out that he was actually leaving the office uh, and that sink for uh, 10 weeks. (laughs) He uh, had an out-of-state teaching gig, um, or at least away from the lab teaching gig. And so by the time he got back, the contents had transformed into a dark, crusty material. And so scientists have actually long suspected that such bacteria should exist, but they had not actually found any examples in nature. For over 100 years, we've known that bacteria can borrow electrons from chemical elements such as nitrogen, sulfur, and iron, as well as manganese. Some bacteria use these electrons to fuel growth, much as humans use electrons from carbohydrates in our diets for fuel. The key to knowing that these were manganese-eating bacteria was that was the residue, which turned out to be manganese oxide. This compound is found all over the planet. Uh, There are deposits in the earth. There are uh, there's manganese oxide on the seafloor. And it's in tap water, which is, of course, where these bacteria uh, were ultimately found. And so there are other bacteria that actually convert manganese to manganese oxide, but they don't actually use the manganese as a food source. Ledbetter and you first isolated around 70 bacteria, bacterial species from the jar. They then isolated two bacterial species, which were, to, when when together, produced that magnesium oxide. And when given magnesium carbonate, they multiplied exponentially. As they multiplied, they very much, uh, as one would expect, created or excreted that manganese oxide, which suggests that they're using the manganese as fuel because they're changing it from manganese um, carbonate to manganese oxide. And so they have been given new names, which I'm going to attempt to pronounce, (laughs) Candidatus, Manganithropus, Najuformans, and Ramlibacter lithotrophicus. The second one is much easier. <laughs> now they don't yet know exactly what role each bacteria plays. It might mean that both are required to generate the energy or one may play a more dominant role, um, but they're just not sure. And so, obviously, they will have to study these bacteria more, but there's already um, ideas about how this could be helpful. So, it could be used in managing manganese oxide pollution uh, in drinking water, according to Amy Pruden, an environmental scientist at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, uh, who was not involved in the study. Now that we have an idea of who the manganese oxidizers are, we can start looking for them in drinking water systems and maybe we can find better controls. Ledbetter, for his uh, role, also suspects that these bacteria might be the cause of mysterious grapefruit-sized balls of magnesium oxide, which have been found on the ocean floor and have puzzled scientists since they were first discovered back in the 1870s. Let's see if we can find these organisms in other environments, Ledbetter said, not just my sink. (laughs) Okay, so now we're gonna move on and we're gonna talk about some larger animals and we're gonna talk about um, ways to track animals and to observe them. And it turned out there were just several stories about this uh, this week. So we're gonna go through uh, several of them. We're going to start out talking about a rather large uh, animal, though some of them can be smaller. Uh, We're going to talk about whales (laughs) and uh, sperm whales to be specific. Mediterranean sperm whales to be even more specific. So it turns out that not all of these whales are interested in foraging for food in the early morning, just like some people aren't all that interested in doing things in the morning either. So some whales are not mourning people is what we're saying. (laughs) Research led by the University of East Anglia has been monitoring the daily habits of the endangered Mediterranean sperm whale. They've been using underwater gliders, which are equipped with acoustic monitors to record the sounds of the whales or the clicks that they make for several months over thousands of kilometers of ocean. Now these whales are talkers they produce distinct types of clicks both for echolocation and for social interaction pr- purposes. The paper was published in Endangered Species Research and concentrated on the clicks which are extremely powerful and highly directional, which are um, produced while the um, whales are foraging. The recordings confirmed that the whales are widespread in the northwestern Mediterranean Sea and found a possible hotspot in the Gulf of Lion, where a higher rate of clicks was found. This could indicate either a higher number of whales or it could be that they are producing more clicks because of behavioral reasons. Now, they found that there are different foraging strategies in different areas. In the Ligurian Sea, um, and the Sea of Sardinia, clicks were detected at all times of the day from mobile and individual foragers. However, in the Gulf of Lyon, large groups targeted intense oceanographic features in the ocean, such as fronts and mixing areas, with acoustic activity showing a clear 24-hour pattern with decreased foraging near dawn. So again, Around dawn, they decided to take a break and maybe catch a nap. (laughs) This could also suggest that they've actually modified their usual foraging patterns of eating at any time to adapt to local prey availability. And so this could have implications for conservation, of course. Because, unfortunately, there are fewer than 2,500 mature individual Mediterranean sperm whales, And they have an abundance of threats that they face. So definitely want to learn more about their habits so that we can inform conservation efforts. The study involved researchers from uh, the UEA and the Center for Environment, Fisheries, and Aquatic Sciences, CFAS, the Scottish Association for Marine Sciences, SAMS, the University of Gothenburg, and the Sorbonne, Uh, University in Paris. Lead author Pierre Couchy, a postgraduate researcher at UEA's Center for Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences and CFAS, notes that Information on the ecology of the Mediterranean sperm whale subpopulation remains sparse and does not meet the needs of conservation managers and policymakers. Increasing observation efforts, particularly in winter months, will help us better understand habitat use and identify key seasonal habitats to allow appropriate management of shipping and fishing activities. He added, the clear daily pattern identified in our results appear to suggest that the sperm whales are adapting their foraging strategies to local prey behavior. The findings also indicate a geographical pattern to their daily behavior in the winter season. And so the study was actually uh, taken from uh, monitoring sensors on those gliders that were recorded during the winters of 2020. 2012, 2013, and uh, in June of 2014. And so uh, Karen Haywood of COAS notes that this is a proof of concept for using this technology, which has previously mostly been used for weather observations. Our ability to successfully observe sperm whale distribution in different geographical areas of the northwestern Mediterranean Sea across the slopes and the open ocean highlighted the complexity of sperm whale behavior, foraging strategies, and habitat use, she said. This study shows that the addition of PAM sensors to existing oceanographic glider missions offers the opportunity for sustained long-term observation which would significantly improve the, would significantly improve sperm whale population monitoring and behavior descriptions as well as identification of key habits and potentially harmful interactions with human activities uh, and in um addition it is proof of concept that uh This might be made more available for studying other marine mammals, not just these whales. Okay, so we have a couple more stories about uh, tracking animals, but I do want to take a moment to do some PSAs and some show promos. So we're going to take a break. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Please stay tuned and we'll be right back. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. And we are back. And so as I said, we are going to be talking about more versions of ways to track animals. And of course, this is extremely important overall for conservation efforts, but also just for us to be able to learn more about animals and their habitats. And so, or their habits, I should say, Um, also their habitats, but let's move on and talk about a new solar powered animal tracker which should hopefully be able to transform the ability of wildlife researchers to study animals and should hopefully, again, improve the welfare of animals being studied, because that's another big issue um, here. The university the University College Dublin has hosted an 18-month pilot study of a new solar-powered tracking device, which was originally designed for vultures, but has been adapted for use on large herbivores, including giraffes, elephants, and wild horses. Incorporating solar panels allowed animals to be tagged, with smaller and lighter GPS devices without losing any of the functionality of larger devices, said Emma Hart, Laboratory of Wildlife Ecology and Behavior at the UCD School of Biology and Environmental Science. Uh, UCD is University of California, Davis. Um, And so traditional devices record the location, behavior, and environmental conditions of the animal which has obviously greatly improved our knowledge and has helped guide conservation efforts. I think we've probably at this point all watched uh some video of animals with trackers on especially say birds with or other animals with uh video cameras now uh and being able to see, for instance, uh, one of the big ones is, of course, peregrine falcons when they dive. And uh, that's always amazing to watch and uh, can be actually, I think there there've been such great camera development that some of them actually can give you some uh, vertigo and um, <laughs> just by watching the video of the peregrine falcon diving. And um, we've put in, you know, sensors are become an incredibly big part of wildlife, uh, both conservation and observation. And so anything that can make that easier is going to be a huge, huge help. And so as we noted, though, these older versions of tracking can have drawbacks. Uh, So attaching and later removing devices involves capturing, restraining, and in some instances, sedation of the animals. And that's a big one. Um, Sedating animals is always really tricky and things can go wrong and you can end up hurting an animal that is endangered that you're trying to study in order to save them from being hurt. And that's not a good plan <laughs> uh, in any way, shape, or form. And so, you know, even if you don't hurt them, it's still stressful. And in a, um, especially in environments that are less abundant, any kind of stress can lower the ability of an animal to survive. And of course, another problem is batteries. So in traditional devices, at some point the batteries run out and you can't do anything else. Um, And so they can vary in weight and size. And it turns out that um, if you have watched, say people putting collars on bears or uh, lions and things like that, they can be quite bulky. And so those end up being just too large to use on a wide range of animals. Um, And just a thing here, um, I watched a Zoom uh, SciTech Cafe the other day about um, sharks, which was really interesting. And one of the things that he mentioned, though, is that sometimes people are worried about the fact that they go out there and tag sharks with these tags. And I have to be very clear that tagging even if it might hurt the animal, um the individual animal especially, tagging has been such a huge boon to our ability to both understand how animals Uh, behave and also to tailor our conservation efforts. And so um, there is a cost-benefit ratio there, but especially with an animal like sharks, which are being really, really decimated, um, I think that it's very important to put these tags on them. They don't hurt the animal, especially sharks. They don't hurt the animal at all. They're putting them in a fin um, where there isn't a lot of if at I've found any nerve endings, and so um, it's definitely not something that you have to worry about in terms of um, that hurting the animal. And we have so much we still don't know about sharks that we really need to know about sharks in order to continue to preserve them or to work on preserving them because in some cases, we haven't done that. Um, Another side note, uh, just from that lecture, sorry to uh, go off on a tangent, but um, one of the other important things he said is that um, finning, which is what a lot of people know about sharks when they just, uh, people will capture sharks, take their fins and just dump their carcass, um, that's been largely illegal um, it's illegal in the United States, it's illegal in a lot of other places, and so yes, there's still people doing that illegally, but there is actually a very large and um, important and um, not well-managed um, fisheries industry for sharks, for actual shark food and um, he mentioned an anecdote where he was talking to someone and someone was saying how, yes, shark fin soup is completely immoral and terrible and then had no objection to eating a filet of shark, Um which is really problematic um, on many levels, because he pointed out, of course, uh, that this person also said something about how, well, that's how normal people eat it. And so not only was it um, unpalatable uh, in a logical perspective, it was also racist. Um, <laughs> and of course, that's one of the things we run into in trying to deal with especially um Animal conservation when it comes to uh, Southeast Asia and traditional medicine and uh, traditional foodstuffs, uh, we have to be sure that we are not um, doing things in a way that is just perpetuating racism, that we are working with people and not uh, condemning them because. This is something that we have to work with them to change their culture and to make them more invested in saving the animals than eating them or using them in medicine. And that's an important thing to do, but it can't be done uh, f- from a sort of white savior perspective. Okay, that was a long aside, and we're going to circle back to actually talking about these um, uh trackers that are solar powered. And so one of the big problems, as we were talking about, that they can be big and bulky is that trackers uh, can only weigh between two and five percent of the animal's body weight. Um, Basically, that is an international standard from uh, animal welfare and uh, conservation and animal behavioral scientists have said that that's like the limit. And, of course, some of them actually have morphology, so their body shape doesn't really lend itself to putting on, say, a uh, collar tag. Um, And so the instance, the example they give is giraffes. And so you could think that giraffes might be able to support a collar around their neck, but they really can't because those long necks have a lot of other things going on and they don't have the ability to actually be able to support a collar like that. And so the analysis was carried out by Hart and her colleagues, and it showed that the small size and longevity of the solar powered devices could stay with the animals during their entire life, which means less interventions with humans to replace batteries or to take off a bulky device. And so they worked with the Giraffe Conservation Foundation in Namibia and Dartmouth College. And the team found that once charged, the units maintained high voltage throughout the test. Uh, the devices even held their charge when the animals were in places without solar, uh, direct solar light. Uh, so in fact, uh, when they were resting in the shade or during the night or during the cloudy wet season, the devices still worked. Devices with longer lifespans will potentially lead to a greater quantity and quality of data collected per individual captured and a reduced frequency of recaptures for removal or replacement of failed devices, Hart said. Behavioral data is, of course, key to keep, is the key to tracking how animals are adjusting to their environments in ways like how they're adjusting to climate change. And so a second paper by Hart and her colleagues noted the vulnerabilities of giraffes of the Namib desert and how they are being affected by climate change. They found that the giraffe's activity was constrained by temperatures above 86 degrees Fahrenheit. During the day and at night, the behavior was actually synchronized with the phases of the moon. Specifically, we found that giraffes were significantly more likely to be active on moonlit nights than on dark nights, with even a small fraction of lunar illumination resulting in significantly higher levels of activity, she said. The study demonstrates some of the first evidence of the strong effect of moonlight on the nocturnal behavior of large wild herbivores, and it shows that undulates— have plastic activity patterns that are vulnerable to modification by external factors. Our results reiterate the importance of identifying areas that can continue to support healthy populations of giraffes despite rising global temperatures, and also highlights the importance of limiting light pollution which when making management decisions regarding wild giraffe and other large undulates. Now, again, this is just a proof of concept to show that these trackers uh, can be useful uh, moving forward in conservation and animal behavioral studies. So hopefully, though, this is going to move into uh, more widespread production and actually being used. All right. So we've got one more study we're going to talk about for animal identification and tracking. A new computer program has been developed, which can analyze photos and videos of birds that are hard to distinguish by humans and identify them as individuals, which is, of course, exciting news, as there are many birds uh, which uh, can be hard to distinguish from one another. Um, Honestly, most birds are hard hard to distinguish from one another unless they have some sort of actual feature that is abnormal to their normal patterning. Um, And so if you think about sparrows, would you really be able to tell one sparrow from another? Um, You can tell the different sparrow species from one another, but individuals, Um, you know, I have a bunch of goldfinches that come to my feeders often, and all of them look very, very similar to one another um, as to be basically indistinguishable. So how do researchers deal with it? We spend a lot of time with binoculars hunkered down, staring at birds and their legs, said Iris Levin, a behavioral ecologist at Kenyon College, who actually wasn't involved in the uh, new work. Now, this is because birds are generally identified by the specific colors and numbers on bands which have been placed on the animal's legs. Now, some tags have become more advanced than these classic metal leg bands with GPS and proximity sensors. And in fact, researchers have used PIT, or Passive Integrated Transponder Tags, uh, the kind that are used in those shoplifting tags or that are put into chips in your pet. Uh, and so those ping linked antennas if the bird lands within a few centimeters. Now, these tags have been used by behavioral ecologist Claire de Treland, of CNRS, the French National Research Agency, and her colleagues on the leg rings of sociable weaver birds since 2017. Sociable weaver birds are quite cool. They work together to construct large, multi-chambered nests in Southern Africa, often in acacia trees. These nests can weigh up to a ton and house up to 200 birds. They also share responsibility for raising chicks and defending against snakes and falcons. As you can imagine, trying to keep track of 200 birds can be a bit of a challenge. Antennas installed on the nest can keep track of which birds are living in the colony, but more granular data has been harder to achieve. Data on which birds contribute most to communal activities, for instance, just isn't available. This is in part because the researchers can't place too many of the antennas as the birds are wary of them. And even if they could, the chambers are close enough that the data wouldn't be complete. Andre Ferreira, a PhD student at the University of Montpelier, thought to try to apply artificial intelligence to the problem. So he used a neural network, which is called a convolutional neural network, and this sifts through thousands of pictures to figure out which visual features are identifiable to an image, and then uses that to classify future images. And so these networks have already been used to identify other plants and species, uh, animal species, including 48 kinds of African animals. They've even been used to identify individual elephants and some primates. And so, Ferreira gave the neural network several thousand photos of 30 sociable weavers, which had previously been tagged. No one had come up with an efficient method to collect these training data sets, he says. In order to gather the information, he set up cameras near bird feeders equipped with the antennas. When a bird would visit the feeder, its chip would be read and a camera would take a picture of its back every two seconds, as the back is the most frequently viewed part of the birds as they nest and forage. After just two weeks, enough photos were available to train the neural network. We were not sure if it would work, Dutrellant recalls. We have observed these birds a lot and we've never managed to recognize them without the color rings. Well, it turned out that the neural network worked better than they could possibly have expected, most likely. The network was able to identify individual birds with a 90% accuracy, according to the paper published in Methods of Ecology and Evolution. And it notes that this is a level of accuracy which is almost identical to that of humans using binoculars. Ferrer then turned to other species. The neural network was able to identify both zebra finches and Great tits in, uh, sorry, zebra finches in captivity and great tits in the wild, which are both species that are widely studied. However, that might be a limitation of the tool. Other birds are harder to tag and to photograph in such a comprehensive way. And it might also need to be retrained if, for instance, a bird molts. Now, Ferreira is collecting photos of other traits, including parts of the head, to see if he can improve the tool and make it useful for people who aren't able to uh, do this kind of comprehensive um, tagging and photographing of individuals. And it also has one known specific limitation at this point. The program currently tries to fit every photo to a bird that is known to it. This means that currently it's incapable of identifying new individuals. Ferreira is now working with Damien Farine, a behavioral ecologist at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior, uh, with whom he worked on those zebra finches and great tits, to try a different kind of neural network to fill in this gap. And so uh, what they're doing now is taking this neural network and giving it many more pictures of birds, um, because it's going to need a lot of pictures of birds in order to develop a way to find if a bird does not look like one that it has looked at before. Um, And so that's going to take some time, but hopefully that neural network will be able to fill in the gaps and... It will be able to become a powerful tool for research in the future because that would be really, really big. Um, and of course, as is the other neural network that was able to uh, distinguish animals that it already knew, uh, that could actually just be useful right now um, to help researchers limit the time that they need to spend hunkered down looking through binoculars um and so I think that's very cool all right let's move on now to a story about the intersection of conservation and kind of charity I guess um this is one of those uh when life gives you lemons make lemonade kind of stories um, I'm not going to pretend that it's some sort of heartfelt, wonderful thing, um, because obviously uh, that's always one of the troubles when you talk about a story like this, where somebody says, oh, you know, that's so heartwarming. It's like, no, it's really not. Um, just because you took two bad situations and combined them to make a semi-good one doesn't mean that those bad situations aren't still bad situations. So let's be clear about that before we start talking about this. Um so, carp were actually introduced into the Groenvle uh, lake in South Africa, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, sorry, in the 1800s. And of course, uh, as noted that they were introduced, they are an invasive species which have been proliferating ever since and are now actually really threatening the ecosystem. And so for nearly two years, the carp have been netted or hunted with bows and arrows, and have been processed into fertilizer. Again, another, if you have lemons, make lemonade situation. Uh, But now they're being given to local people in Sedgefield, a town that usually relies on tourism. And so of course, with South Africa coming into the Fifth month of a lockdown, uh, they've come up with a creative way to both continue the conservation work and also help people uh, survive during these uncertain times. The carp that we take out, we donate it to our local communities as part of a food diet because fish is actually an important source of protein, said Thulani Ndlovu manager at Cape Nature, a governmental nature conservation organization. Around 250 people per day are being fed with fish from the lake. It is a difficult time since COVID-19 started. We could not work. There is no money to buy food, said Erica Curdom, speaking behind her mask after collecting her ration for the day. This fish helps us greatly, she said. And unfortunately, South Africa uh, actually has some of the highest numbers of coronavirus infections. Um, And so, again, this is a great creative problem solving solution, but um, definitely still a when life gives you really terrible lemons, make slightly delicious lemonade. (laughs) Okay, um, let's move on and talk about cats for a minute. And so we've talked about birds and we've talked about fish. Um, so let's talk about cats now. <laughs> um, and this is, this is a little bit different. It's, um, a, it's sort of a story more than a report. Um, and so a team has kind of looked at some of the literature that's out there and they're kind of questioning it. So um, you've probably heard that feral slash outdoor cats are basically just a scourge to local wildlife and that they are just out there murdering everything that they can find. I've believed it myself, in fact, um, and I've been very, very careful um, never to let my cats out, not only for that reason, but for a variety of other reasons. Um, But I definitely would never want them to contribute to uh, the decimation of local life um, around my house and in fact I've been very excited there's a lot of local uh, wildlife around my house and um, Other people might not be as excited about that. Um, (laughs) People who I live with, for instance, but um, I have seen all sorts of things. We have two resident chipmunks. uh, We even have some field mice. um, And we have a toad, which is very exciting to me. I'm so loving having the toad. um, But anyways, I'm digressing. And so, um, for instance, I have to admit, in Australia, uh, they have a problem, and they have actually declared an official war against cats um, in Australia, which obviously has struggled mightily with invasive species. And so um, a new article has come out by a group of scientists from Clark University, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Tufts University, Virginia Polytech. University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, and the College of William and Mary, which is pushing back against this idea that cats are just universally a scourge. They suggest that the war against outdoor cats is rooted more in a moral panic than actual science. They note that the panic does arise from valid concerns and interest in protecting native species, but this feeling has led to errors in scientific reasoning. They argue instead that it is humanity's exploitation of nature which is at the heart of the issue. They note that some conservationists believe that free-ranging cats pose an enormous risk to biodiversity and public health, and therefore should be eliminated from the landscape by any means necessary. They further claim that those who question the science or ethics behind their arguments are science deniers, quote-unquote merchants of doubt, seeking to mislead the public. As much as we share a commitment to conservation of biodiversity and wild nature, we believe these ideas are wrong and fuel an unwarranted moral panic over cats. And so the researchers were specifically responding in part to a 2018 paper called Merchants of Doubt in the Free-Ranging Cat Conflict, by Scott Loss of Oklahoma State University and Peter Mara of the National Zoological Park, which compared those who do not believe in the scourge of free-ranging cats to those who deny climate change or the harms of smoking. In addition, conservationists and media outlets have often claimed, uh, have often sort of taken up this cry that cats are one of the main factors contributing to mass extinctions. However, the interdisciplinary team of scientists and ethicists argued that it is habitat loss, habitat degradation, and other human-led activities which are the leading cause of such damage and loss, not cats. They found that the impact of cats differs based on different environments, such as urban areas, small islands, and remote deserts. They note that when humans denude an area, it leaves prey animals with few places to hide from potential predators. They also note that humans often kill apex predators, which would otherwise control cat populations, such as coyotes in America and dingoes in Australia. And in fact, in some places, cats are actually helping endangered bird species by preying on rats and mice, which would in fact then prey on baby birds. And in other places, they coexist in equilibrium with native prey species. The fact is that the relationship between cats and the environment is much more complex than it has been suggested both by conservationists and the media. They conclude specifically that, it is true that people may legitimately disagree about what constitutes the common good, such as emphasizing the well-being of cats versus the protection of biodiversity. And, One or all may be in error in part or in whole, but this fact cannot be used to claim that those seeking the well-being of cats have the nefarious motives of those entities seeking to mislead political decision makers and civil society on climate change and its consequences. Scientists and conservationists should instead strive to engage with those concerned with the well-being of cats because they are often also concerned with the well-being of wildlife. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about this is that this is an important thing that is a cornerstone of good science. And so it's really important for scientists to be able to disagree with one another and to explore things like this um, so that we can always be able to be striving towards finding the best possible answer and calling people deniers when there is a legitimate uh, conversation to be had over the interpretation of the data isn't fair. And of course, some people would say, well, you know, you should be applying that to global warming. And it's like, in that case, uh, the overwhelming majority of scientists agree that global warming is happening, but here the science is much less money, is much more muddy. um, and so science is a process that works to overcome human biases and errors, but it is still a product of human action and thought. And so it's still we still play an important role in interpreting the results of experiments and studies. And again, this is a feature, not a bug. Science is an ever-changing, ever-improving process. And so we just need to remember that. Um, when we are reading about interpretations of scientific facts. All right, that's all the time we have for tonight. Please do uh, come back next week for more evidence-based radio. Thanks. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.